I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Apostles. All who believed 
were together and all had things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as, and, as any had a need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at the home and ate with their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of God for us, the people of God. So now I'm going to turn it over to Brian Morak. He is a friend of Michelle's. They uh, knew each other in Virginia Beach. They went to Duke together. And he is on the staff over at a Methodist church in Fairfax Station. So, Brian, I'll give it to you. You don't need this, right? Nope. All right. Y'all hear me okay? Awesome. 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 Uh, a funny thing about Michelle uh, that Melissa didn't mention is that, um, and this may not shock you at all, um, is that Michelle and I love doing karaoke together. Um, so if you ever want to hear her and I do total eclipse of the heart, uh, be sure to join us at our next outing. Uh, but in all seriousness, Michelle is a dear friend, and she and I have known each other for quite some time. Actually, we served together at a church in Durham uh, that actually started in a school, uh, believe it or not. And so this is kind of a homecoming in a sense, because I'm not accustomed to a uh, church in a box like I used to be. So that scripture Melissa just read, uh, I want you to picture that in your head right now, this, this community of people that almost sounds like it could come out of a Hallmark card. You know, everything seems to be unified, the people are giving thanks with glad and generous hearts, and everybody seems to have a common bond together. And I'm going to read that scripture to you uh, a little bit differently in a more modern sense, and I'll tell you why. Awe came upon everyone because many joys and events were taking place among those college students. All who believed were together and had the same things in common. They would lead worship at the Women's Correctional Center, host a meal for their Muslim friends down the road, and hold vigil in the midst of racist attacks on Charlottesville. Day by day, as they spent a lot of time together, they shared meals together, took communion once a week with glad and generous hearts, celebrating God's goodness. And day by day, the Lord's abundant grace was made known to them on full display. This was my experience. This was that formative space in my own ministry journey. This was my experience at the Wesley Fellowship at UVA when I was a college student. It's where I experienced perhaps my most formative moment in my call to ministry. And what stuck with me was that was what community meant to me. That was the church that I was called to. And it was a place that truly, at its core, was Wesleyan. Now, when we hear that description of the early church in Acts 2, we might be asking, well, how much more picturesque can you get? Everyone seems to be on the same page. Heck, God's adding to their numbers day by day. That would make any mainline church pastor happy these days, right? It portrays a lofty set of ideals that all of us struggle with to navigate day in and day out. But at its core, it's profoundly Wesleyan. Now, I want to challenge us when I pose the word Wesleyan to you 
to begin to slowly remove the words that may be coming into your head right now. And I want us all to go to that place together. Words that you might be thinking right now may include potlucks, Methodists, general conferences, judicial councils. In fact, I want you to remove any sort of notion of any institutional church affiliation right now. Because believe it or not, the last thing John Wesley wanted was a new denomination, a new church. He was a reformer at his core. And in fact, Wesleyan, to be Wesleyan, is more about one's theological outlook than it is about the form it might take. So we've been in this series with Pastor Michelle called Defining Our Terms, and as you know, words have a particular potency about them, right? Words have the ability to build us up, and we feel affirmed, we feel uh, empowered, but we also know that the other end of words, the opposite extreme, words can really tear us down. Words can victimize us, words can objectify us. And so as we continue in the series, we talk about this word, Wesleyan. And in fact, it's a word that, uh, like the other terms you've talked about, evangelical, uh, orthodoxy, lib uh, liturgical, uh, these are words that actually are more in harmony with one another than you might think. So who is this guy behind the term Wesleyan? Why does he deserve such an accolade in our book? And so before we move on to the why, why it is we are Wesleyan, I think it's paramount that we explore the what. So here is your brief history lesson from a non-historical person. So the Wesleyan movement, as I mentioned, was about reforming the church. It began all the way back to the Church of England when King Henry VIII was having nothing to do with the Catholic Church, and so he made some changes. Not all for the good, but he made some changes that he felt were necessary. He also had a daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, who actually made some more modest changes and tried to find a middle way in reforming the ways of the Catholic Church. One of these was a particular uh, animosity toward the Pope and the head of the church. Others included things like how one was able to get to heaven, how one earned salvation. But in many ways, neither of the two of them went far enough for John Wesley. If you want something a little more exciting and scandalous and out there, you can watch the Tudors and get a good idea of what's going on. And so enter into the picture John Wesley. John Wesley was the child of an Anglican priest. His father was in the Anglican church. His mother, Susanna, was actually an early advocate for the education of young women, not just in the faith, but in the school system. He also had a grandfather who was very much a dissenter when it came to the established religious beliefs in their time. His brother Charles would be uh, well known for his many hymns he wrote, one of which we sang this morning, O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. Wesley was an Oxford grad who was more inclined to share his faith with others than to become the next big thing in town. He was all about one's personal experience of faith and never intended for that to detract from the other things in his lifetime. When we look at Wesley's path and articulating his faith, it almost feels like speed dating. He would latch on to different groups of faith communities, 
find something he was really attracted to about them, and then he would find something about another faith community that he really truly believed. And so when we reclaim Wesleyanism in its most primitive form, we reclaim a movement that didn't thrive because of general conferences, but because it placed a value on one's personal encounter and understanding of God and how that individual lived that belief out among God's people. For Wesley, human choice was a significant matter that couldn't be ignored. In fact, he drew upon his experiences to start things that we know today as Bible studies and small groups. Communities where people wouldn't just come to church and hear and listen and then move on with their day, but they'd actually get together and talk about it. They would live it together, like the early church did in Acts 2, where all they had was each other to rely on the things that they believed. Wesley referred to these groups as societies, and these were groups where faith was less about the boxes you checked and more about how you were growing in your relationship with God. If someone were to come up to you on the side of the street and ask you, how is it with your soul? You may look at them pretty strangely. But that was really the question that Wesley sought to ask in these groups, because Wesley genuinely cared about how people were growing in their faith to the point that he himself was known to question and second guess his beliefs and whether or not he was a claiming child of God. You know, if we were to ask those questions differently today in the context of our own small groups, it might be, how is your week? Where are you with God? What's jacked your joy this week? How is it with your soul? May not be a question too unfamiliar to us. Wesleyans live in this tension of a God who is in and of all things, and yet who also gives you and I the gift to choose, the gift to respond. This was one of the things that made him drastically different than those who felt that salvation was an in and who's out kind of game. We call that predestination. Wesleyan was about humans' ability to choose and embrace the gift of God's salvation poured out to us as a free gift for all who choose to receive it. Without context, you might think that this question would have no place in some churches today. How is it with your soul? Why would you want to admit that you were struggling or doubting or wrestling with something when it came to your faith? But for Wesley, there was that room to grow. There would be times where we wouldn't live up to the glory of God. We would make mistakes. We would fall short. But Wesley believed grace could always be found in the community of the body of believers. When we fall short of the glory of God, we still recognize that God pursues us with endless grace. When you think about that picture of church in Acts 2, we have to recognize that these people could not exist separately. This was all that they knew. There was no robust theology back then. Everything was hearsay. They didn't have the complete scriptures that you and I do. But what they did have was each other. And what they did have was people who they knew could count on the beliefs that they upheld. Accountability was at the heart of Wesleyan life together. Wesley had what we call three general rules. And they're pretty simple. Do no harm. Do good. 
and attend upon all the ordinances of God. Where there is harm, ensure to speak out against where those places of harm are. Do good if you see somebody in your community that's in need or if you notice a disparity in your community. Act on that. The do all you good you can. You know, those are timeless practices. And when he says attend upon the ordinances of God, he's talking about those very things that draw us closer in communion with God. The way that you all here at Kingstown gather at this table each and every week. Wesley was all about in fact, he took it often as four times a week because he believed and counted on what God was doing at that table. It's acts of prayer. It's acts of corporate worship. It's being in small groups together. It's fasting. Those were the heart and core of Wesleyan community. And in many ways, I believe, they resemble those early church days. These rules were foundational for what Wesley called Christian perfection. Now, I want us to hear together that perfection is not about completion. It's not about having it all together. But it's about looking in that spiritual mirror and recognizing where we may need some pruning ourselves and who we can invite into that space as we walk that journey together. Kelly Gissendaner was involved in a Bible study. She earned a certificate from Candler School of Theology. She was a, a deep woman of faith. She was a woman who led small groups. She prayed for the women around her. But unfortunately, the identity what uh, Kelly was often conflated with was in 2015, she was involved and convicted uh, as a planner in her husband's murder. And in spite of the dramatic transformation she had in her many years on death row, she still was victim to a state execution. This woman had had a traumatic change. She had gone to seminary while she was in prison. She had experienced God's grace in her life to the point where those who had been harmed by her actions were starting to offer her forgiveness and starting to see God's love an endless pursuit of her in spite of what she had done. When I think of Kelly's story, I think about this idea of Christian perfection, this idea that no matter what we've done and where we've been, God can still use us and align our hearts toward grace. Kelly said this shortly before her death. She said, the theology program that I have taken has shown me that hope can still be alive and that despite a gate hovering over my head, I still possess the ability to prove that I am a human loved by God. Labels on anyone can be notoriously misleading and unforgiving things, but no matter the label attached to me, I have the capacity and the desire to accomplish something positive and have a lasting impact. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, God is always doing a new thing. But the other piece to that verse is, do we recognize it? And John Wesley was very attuned to that. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge the change, but it's another to actually take ownership of it. It's another thing to actually live into that reality. And so that brings us to scripture. 
Now, Wesley, to be a Wesleyan is to still hold on to the importance of Scripture. For him, Scripture was primary. It was God-inspired. It was God's word for us, the people. That's why when we share the word of God, we acknowledge and give gratitude to God by saying thanks be to God. But it's also a dangerous claim to make when you tell somebody else that they're not speaking from a place of scriptural authority. For one, who are we to define what that even means? What does that mean? And who are we to tell somebody or somebody else that they're not speaking from that place? And two, we have this living word, God's living word, intended to be interpreted. So why should we denounce somebody else's experience of it, right? Wesley never wanted people to check their mind and their brain at the door when it came to scripture. Dare I say, he probably was very uncomfortable with what some may look at as a literal interpretation of scripture. Wesley said this before a collection of his sermons. He said, is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear dark or intricate? I then search after and consider parallel passages of scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I meditate thereon with all the attention and earnestness of which my mind is capable. You know, time and time again, we come across passages in Scripture that conflict with each other, right? There are many times where we read something, and then we read something entirely different in another passage. We've seen the ways that Scripture can not only challenge us and pose conflict, but we've also seen it used to victimize others. We've seen it used to objectify other groups of people. And so Wesley wanted us to truly wrestle with our human reason and our human knowledge, how to understand scripture from a place of our own experience. We see the ways that modern achievements in science often conflict with scripture and cause lots of debate. We see the ways that uh, sometimes scriptures are used out of context, we call it cherry picking, uh, used to victimize uh, even people like me who have tattoos because they don't read the whole context. We see them used to defend the separation of children from their parents. And we still see them used to press against a society where patriarchy has no place. But for Wesley, scriptural authority was never a hindrance, but a gift. It was a gift for him to allow people to truly wrestle with God's word among and gathered with other people. When we look at Jesus' ministry and interactions with others, he helped people understand who God was and what God had come to do. When we talk about Wesleyan theology, it's very incarnational. It's very contextual. Because when we understand who Jesus is and our relationship with Jesus, we begin to understand the kind of person God is. Our understandings of God and faith are informed by those concrete experiences that we've had the traditions that we've come to know well, the experiences with ourselves and God and also with the people around us. A Wesleyan theology doesn't simply settle for the basics, but it invites other voices into the conversation. Wesley desired to ensure that faith was not only accessible, but practical. I mentioned earlier that his brother Charles was very musical. 
And if you didn't know this already, one of the most famous Christmas hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is a Charles Wesley hymn. Because what was beautiful to the Wesley brothers was that for people, music was what they knew for some people. And for them to be able to sing that theology, to live and breathe those words of their belief, meant something tangible to them. Surely enough, a theologian in his own right, Charles strongly believed that if beliefs weren't practical, the church was missing its mark. And lastly, Wesley was one for whom personal holiness could not function and thrive without what he called social holiness. In other words, what God does in our own personal lives should be lived out and shared with the communities around us. The people who adopted early forms of Christianity in Acts 2 recognized that there were needs in their community. They recognized when they needed to give of themselves for others. Later on in the early church, they recognized that there were orphans and widows who were in need of the community's support. And so they gave of themselves to accomplish that because they believed it was God's will. John Wesley himself was no stranger to prisons, no stranger to the education of children. He was a staunch advocate to end slavery. Wesley firmly believed that if we, if the people called Methodists in his day were not acting on their beliefs and acting on their faith, they weren't fully attuned to God's will. Wesley probably would not look at the modern phrase social justice and conflate it with some sort of political platform because he believed it was the logical response of a passionate and merciful God in somebody's life. Because when we love others as God does, we too grow in that relationship. If you recall your baptism in the Methodist church, one of the things that were asked is this following question. Do you resist evil? injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? It's a very daunting question. And I think today even we are still trying to define what that looks like. My congregation is neighbors with a reformed Jewish temple, Temple B'nai Shalom, on Ox Road. And if you recall last fall, there were some horrific drawings painted on the side of the Northern Virginia Jewish Community Center that were very harmful, very hate-filled. And so one of the things our kids' ministry decided to do, um, particularly for the children of the temple, was to make cards that said, you are loved. This is not a God, we, we worship a God who's not of hate. And they brought those cards over to the children of the temple. And it was just one of those beautiful reminders that even our young people, can adopt what it means to be a baptized child of God and to live out social holiness in a world that is constantly broken. How are you, Kingstown, embodying your baptismal calling and the ways that you reach out into this community? How are you doing no harm, doing good, and attending upon the ordinances of God through your good work together? It's no secret that for many, the word Wesleyan has now taken on meaning that is perhaps fair, unfairly ascribed. 
In recent months, even the word reeks of faction, corruption, and because of recent media attention, a blanket statement that we're hate-filled people. Words can perk our sensitive ears to the point where we struggle not to just succumb to a self-fulfilling prophecy that we know not to be entirely true. And so what would it look like for us to reclaim this word, Wesleyan? A word that's rooted in reform and not structure. A word that's about movement and vitality. At what point has the church halted the perpetual drive like the early church to do something good instead of getting bogged down in the mire and the mud? Where is that common ground that those people in Acts 2 had? This Friday is the anniversary of one of the most significant moments in Wesley's faith journey. Call it Aldersgate Day. It was the time on May 24th when John Wesley felt his heart, quote, strangely warmed by God on Aldersgate Street, England. And it was from that moment that Wesley realized that God truly had a claim on his heart and that God truly was a forgiving God. That God, no matter what he had done and where he had been, extended what has become paramount to the Wesleyan tradition of unfathomable grace. And if you take anything away from today, Wesleyans are about grace. The grace that is extended to us without measure, without cost, without price. This unmerited, uncreated piece of who God is. It's the grace present in the table of a God who invites all who love God, all who repent and seek to live in peace with one another. This isn't Kingstown's table. It's not the Methodist Church's table, but Christ is the one doing the inviting. And we get an invitation to feast at that table as often as we can because God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is the grace that enabled somebody like Thomas to have the doubts he did. God's forgiving grace was the grace that Judas experienced sitting uncomfortably at that table that last supper night. God's grace was the free gift for when that criminal turned to the other side of the cross and looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the grace that is a true mark of what it means to be a Wesleyan. And so as we prepare our hearts to gather around this table, we gather as if it's always the first time, because at this table is forgiveness and grace and an ability to grow with God so that all who love God and all who know God may come to live out that grace abundantly in the presence of others.
at the table of the room.